Side, side, all around. But Jesus, he ain't leaving me, oh. But Jesus, he ain't leaving me, oh. But Jesus, he ain't leaving me, oh.
tickets to Eric for breaking the most chairs. And uh, congrats to Danny for dunking too hard and breaking the rim. Fellowship. Uh, but man, God's really moving. We got some incredible disciples here in the church, some warriors. Um, you know, I, I'm just so proud of our uh, young brother, uh, Jonathan. And, you know, Satan's really gone after him through different areas, and he's really stood strong, and he's yeah. fought back, and God's been awesome. blessed in a great way. Um, my brother Russell. Come on, uh, Russell. Russell was really inspired by uh, the midweek uh, service that we had about missions. He said, I'm going to give all my missions this Sunday. Uh, and then Satan went after him and made him sick for two days, and he punched Satan in the face and came to church on Sunday. verse 13, he's sending out his final greetings, and he says, send my greetings to Rufus, for his mother has been a mother to me too. Wow. Where did he meet Rufus's mother? Well, when he was walking down the Via Della Rosa, carrying his cross to where he would die and breathe his last breath, he stumbled and he fell, and Simon of Cyrene, a man from northern Africa, comes over and picks up his cross and helps him carry it the rest of the way. Simon's uh, sons were Rufus and Alexander, who became disciples, and his wife also became a disciple. And she became the mother in the faith to to the Apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing? You know, we all have mothers that we can learn from. I, 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 of course, can't talk about mothers without talking about my own mom. Uh, my parents came to, to, uh, to Seattle last weekend. Yeah, they had a great time. We buttered them up the whole time. Uh, tried to just show our love and, and give as much attention to them as possible for obvious reasons um, that I'm not going to say via the internet. As this lesson we went online, but um, we really, really love my parents a lot, and they're in Chicago for now, and that's all I'm going to say. But, um, you know, really, of course, love my mom. You know, when I left Chicago back in 2010, I did a lesson called Lessons I Learned in Chicago. And it was four points based off four of the people in the Chicago church that had the most influence on me. When I went to New York City, after that, when I left, I wrote a lesson called Lessons I Learned in New York City. And I just listed a number of different things that I learned during my time in the ministry in New York City. Today I'd like to try something new. I've never preached a lesson like this before. You know, last week we talked about Asa. At Mary's devotional a couple weeks ago, we talked about Ananias and, or Priscilla and Aquila. 
Um, there's a lot you can learn from people in the Bible. However, the Bible says that anyone that's currently in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest man ever born of woman, which was John the Baptist. And if you're in the kingdom of God, Jesus himself says you are greater than them. Because prophets and kings have longed to see what you see today, which is kingdom of God here on earth. And so I think we can study out people in the Bible. We can dig deep into their lives and learn from their characters. But I also think we can look around the fellowship and learn from these incredible examples of people that God's currently put in our lives. So the title of my lesson is Lessons Learned from My Love, Courtney Parlor. You know, one of the things that I really have always appreciated about Courtney before she was a Parlor is her level of joy. And so my first point is the power of laughter. Please turn with me to Psalm 118. Come on, Joel. In Psalm 118, the psalmist tells us what we need to really value in life. Yeah. Courtney had no idea I was doing this. this no, time. I didn't. <laughs> in Psalm 118, in verse 22. Come on, Joel. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. You know, right here we see from the psalmist that the Lord has made Jesus the capstone. The rock that the church is built on, 1 Corinthians 3.11, is Jesus Christ. He is the capstone. He is the cornerstone. It is only because of Him that the church can stand for, at this moment, over 2,000 years. Now, the psalmist wrote this probably around 1,000 B.C., and so here we are 3,000 years later, living in the moment that he was speaking of. And yet, in that moment, he says, as of right now, the stone that the builders rejected is now the cornerstone of the church. And so what we see here is a faithfulness to the prophecy of God that Jesus would be that cornerstone. And if he could say it a thousand years early, then we can say it today. Therefore, he says, so we can rejoice this very day and we need to be glad. Isn't that awesome? You know, there's a lot of power in laughter. Paul would say, rejoice always. I've said it again. Rejoice. Today is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's easy to rejoice on days like this. When you look outside and see the sunshine, you feel the warmth, you can put on some shorts, you can put on a t-shirt and really enjoy the weather. But we don't get our joy as disciples from the weather. We get our joy from God. And every day that we live that God has created, we can rejoice and be glad in it. In John chapter 10, verse 10, the Bible says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come. Jesus has come that we may have life and live it to the full. And my wife is a very enjoyable person to be around, and I believe that she really got it from her parents. Jerry and Leanne are here with us. They're out of town for the weekend, but... 
You know, we had a marriage midweek a couple weeks ago, and we did the newlyweds game. And even though we didn't have any newlyweds, it's kind of good to get a little refresher and see still how well you know your spouse. And one of the questions that was asked is, what are the most important aspects to having a strong marriage? And so everyone would write down the answer, and then we'd share the answer with each other. And what did you know that Jerry and Leanne separately, without talking to each other, said the same thing? Nice. A sense of humor. That's awesome. <laughs> a sense of humor. It is so important that we learn how to enjoy each other's company. Come on, Joel. And not take things so seriously yeah. all the time. Though it may be serious, you got to learn to be light on your feet. Amen. I believe that God is a jokester. Yeah. I mean, even after all, Isaac's name means to laugh. And so we need to understand the importance of laughter and finding joy in Christ. You know, you may be filled with a joy, but not necessarily have the moment of enjoy. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, Even on. Paul says rejoice always. And you go, well, Paul, were you rejoicing when you were getting flogged? Oh. Were you rejoicing when they were throwing stones at you? Oh, were no. you rejoicing through all the persecution? Don't be a hypocrite here. Ooh. You tell us to rejoice always. Were you rejoicing? I do believe that Paul had a deep level of joy. Yeah. Now that doesn't always necessarily look like enjoy, Amen. but you can find a joy, a satisfaction, a contentment in your walk with God that isn't reliant upon your circumstances yeah. like the weather. Yeah. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22, it says, A cheerful heart is good medicine. In John chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says, Ask and you shall receive, so that your joy may be complete. Come on, bro. God wants you to enjoy your life, though that is not his goal for you. Yeah. He wants you to find a joy and a contentment with him. Yeah. What are the things that can keep us from being joyful? Come on, Joe. There are many different things. I've wrote down four of them here. But number one, I think, is bitterness. Mm. Bitterness, because when we have bad attitudes with each other, our eyes are no longer on God, and they become focused on people. Right. And then we're liable to bad attitudes or bitterness. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, See to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Yeah. You see, we've got to be careful that we don't let bitterness creep into our hearts. Yeah, Grumbling. Grumbling. You know, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and went into the desert, they no longer were eating nice steak dinners. Now they were stuck eating banana and quail and drinking water all the time. And there came a point when they started grumbling to God. And it didn't take very long. Because their eyes got off of God and the salvation that he's provided. And they got focused more on things. So when our eyes leave God and go on to materialistic things, we now become liable to grumbling. And you cannot find joy in a state of grumbling. Yeah. Thirdly, complaining. The Bible says do everything without complaining. You know, complaining is very dangerous because complaining shows God that you care more about your situation and your circumstances than you do about your relationship with Him. Your eyes go off of Him and more onto your current state. And you complain about what's going on. You want something that you're not getting. You complain. This, of course, will keep you from a true joy. Dissension. Dissension, spreading things about each other to one another. That will destroy the joy of a ministry. Yeah. Yeah. We need to find a true joy in our relationship with God. Amen. You know, I do believe that there are many things that we face that aren't necessarily sin, 
but they can expose our hearts and the sin that's inside of our hearts. Yeah. You know, sometimes people say things like, man, going to Bible talk every week makes me struggle. This person makes me struggle. Or giving missions contribution makes me struggle. Let me tell you, these things don't make you struggle. They just are being used by God to expose that you're already struggling. Right. There are sins in your heart that are getting exposed through these different things. Yeah. You know, we can often complain about different things going on in our life. And yet when we really get a true perspective, it really changes the way we think. Maybe you've heard the quote, maybe you haven't. You can complain about having no shoes until you see someone with no feet. There's always something to be grateful for. You know, people go, well, I don't, I don't know if I, if I really fully believe in the idea of giving all my missions contribution. And fortunately, no one in the church that, I've, that I'm aware of is feeling that way. Amen. We, Amen. we seem to have pretty good hearts about everything. Yeah. But you know, the reality is every single person is committed to obeying Matthew 28, 19 to 20, where Jesus says, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything. I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That is a command for every human being. Yes. And you go, well, how am I supposed to go out to all these different nations? You see, as disciples, we have two choices. There are only two kinds of disciples. You either go and you grow the kingdom, or you stay and you pay for the kingdom. Amen. But either way, the kingdom needs to continue to grow, and we need to feel totally a part of that growth Absolutely. in our personal obedience to Jesus. Yeah. Now, yes, he was talking to Peter, but do you think this was an opportunity for Peter to go, okay, I see that what you're saying here, Jesus, we're going to teach our children how to do it so they can do it only for their generation. No, when Jesus tells you to do something, you get up and you go do, so, do that something. If Jesus asks you to go make a sandwich, would you wait till next week? No. no, you go into the kitchen and you make them a sandwich. Amen. And when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, do we wait and sit around and contemplate and see what's going to happen? No. We get up and we go and we do it. Amen? Amen. You know, I'm really excited about what God's doing all over the world. It's really amazing to see how fast some of our international churches are growing. One of the star churches of the movement right now is in Manila. And the Manila church currently is being led by Richie and Elizabeth McDonald, who are true Americans at heart. They were in Arizona, then they led the church in Washington, D.C., and they're not even 30 years old yet. they got three kids, and here they are on the mission field, laying it all on the line to lead our sister church in Manila, and they've done a great job. They've seen over 50 additions so far this year. Tons and tons and tons of people are coming to Christ. The church is growing. They're now around 240 disciples in Manila. Isn't that amazing? Recently... Elizabeth wrote this poem because she was really starting to miss America and the comfortable lifestyle that she had here because being in a third world country is no easy task. And I'd like to read this poem to you this morning. Come on, bro. Come on. The sin of comfortability. Oh, how I wish it were not mine. I used to be the person who longed for adventure, but somewhere along having three kids... I seem to have lost her. Instead of good old carpe diem, I long for a home that's familiar to its owner. See, growing up was comfortable. 
I even venture easy. Some would call me lucky, blessed. But one day I knew there'd be a test. A thorn in my flesh to keep me humble, an area I'd always stumble. Something to keep me relying on God, not tempted to handle it all myself. But sin's deceitful above all else. And I was sure I'd never look like this. But what's the sin in a steady life? What's so wrong with that picture? Don't you know each temptation is different from one person to another? A quaint life is not necessarily evil. I would not call it wicked. But the longing to be comfortable would keep me from my true mission. Like Lot, I've been called to something greater, something adventurous and exciting. But the road that lay ahead is both arduous and frightening. A life of eternal uncertainty, a land not familiar, unknown. But do I follow in his footsteps and take the easy way out? Settle for a place called small and forsake doing something greater? My life is not my own. But the blessings have had me fooled. Satan used the good God gave me to lure me to my doom. For me, to settle would be my end. A conscious choice to forfeit. To know a promise land awaits, but not be willing to go take it. A missionary life is not easy. My life is far from comfortable. There are things that bring me so much joy, but deep down it's more profound. My soul is undergoing a hard transition, a lesson that's rocking it to its core. I have no home here in this world. Nothing but the one above. Nothing in this world to take comfort in. Nothing to make it whole. And the longer my soul wanders about looking to be comforted, the less I enjoy the peace that comes with faithful uncertainty. I believe Abraham was happy, joyful to face the unknown, willing to take the uncomfortable path because it was his own. Every journey is unique to each person. And this is the one for me, that I might find joy in hardship and complete uncertainty. But please, don't afford me any pity. Just learn from my mistakes. I've learned that God is willing to do whatever it may take. Mm. He loves me and cherishes me and wants to see me in heaven one day. But for now, he's content to mold me his specific way. And hopefully, I'll be a vessel, even more fit for duty, than the day I decided Jesus was Lord and willingly surrendered my journey. Mm. Wow. That's awesome. You know, it's not easy to be a missionary. She was open and in tears when this poem was read. It's not easy to go out there and to hold the responsibility of evangelizing an entire nation. And yet, can we learn from her mistakes? Will we not fall into the same deceitful scheming of the devil to be comfortable with the material possessions that God has blessed us with? We must... Continue to keep the heart of joy, not from things, not from circumstances, not from people, but from God. Amen. This is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Secondly, one of the great things that I've learned from Courtney is a clean house allows for a clear head and a clear heart. Look at Psalm chapter 11. Come on, bro. Jesus 
believed this was a topic worth discussing, not just for a brother's D group, but for all men for all time. Amen. It's in Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. Come on, Joel. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by who do your followers drive, out, drive them out? So then, you will be your own judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You know, right here we see Jesus being engaged by these false teachers in the Jewish world. He's just driven out a demon. And these people don't come to him and say, hey, thank you so much for getting the demon out of our town. We really appreciate it. No, they get critical. They get critical toward the miracle. And they say, you must be working for Satan because only Satan can drive out his own demons. Wow. And Jesus reverses their logic and goes, well, then how do you drive them out? You know, we've got to be very careful in how we use the scriptures and make sure that we're not going against men of God and women of God. Right. Sometimes we try to use logic, but the scriptures aren't always logical. They're spiritual. They hold some logic, but it's all truth. Yeah. And we've got to learn how to adequately use the scriptures. Jesus here is making a clear parallel, not just in this metaphor of, of this man and the house, but really all of Israel. For all of time, all of God's people are being quoted in this metaphor right here. Let's break it down. The strong man is the devil. His palace, his home, is the world. The goods that he's protecting, these are lost souls. But the stronger man is Jesus, and the demons are still demons. What, is, what do we learn right here? When Jesus conquers Satan, he drives the demons out. He sweeps it clean, and he sets it in order. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when Israel came out of Egypt, they were literally in Egypt, surrounded by idols, and they're freed from Egypt to go into the desert and eventually the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, now they have salvation, and now they have a temple where they can actually worship their own God. 
But in this freedom, they used it to go out and to bring false idols from the nations around them into Israel. And in a sense, it was seven times worse after they were released from Egypt than before. They're in Egypt, and yet somehow they maintain holiness. But then they were given freedom in their own land, and they used it, they used it against God to bring in these false idols. You know, the church in the first century had the same struggle, and I believe that we also have the same struggle. We wrestle between this doctrine of grace. Well, if we get grace, if we get forgiven, then does that mean no matter how much I sin, I still get forgiven? The Bible teaches that when you walk in the light and you stay repentant, then you stay forgiven. Yeah. But the moment you deliberately start turning your back on God and sin willingly, now you're in danger. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says you've turned your, your back on God. You're trampling the blood of Christ. There is no more sacrifice for sin left because now you're deliberately sinning against God. Yeah. Now only God really knows where that line is at. But are you brave enough to get close to that line? The church in Rome was. And they came up with this new doctrine called antinomianism, which was literally the more you sin, the more you get forgiven. And the twist on it was, even if it's willing sins. And so what was happening in the church in Rome is people were literally going out there having in, in just ridiculous amounts of sin at their parties. And they would just be incredibly immoral and then afterwards think that, well, now we just brought God more glory because he's given us more grace because we sin even more. And Paul addresses this false idea, this, this, this horrible logic in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I love what I believe is the Phillips version of the Bible. He says, what a ghastly thought. How can we live in it any longer? I mean, it's just, it's so out there to take God's grace for granted and go, well, now I'm saved. Now I'm in the promised land. Now I can do whatever I want. And Jesus is warning the Jews of this right here. And he says, when your house is swept clean and when things are looking good and in order, that's when the real temptation comes. You know, in John chapter 20, Jesus raises from the dead. And in verse 7, Peter shows up to the tomb. And what does he find? But Jesus' linens are folded and in order in the tomb. You know, Jesus had a conviction, not just to talk about cleanliness, but he was actually living it out. So much so he cleaned up his own tomb before he left. You know, if Jesus is going to clean his own tomb... How much do we have to clean our room? I mean, is your home hospitable enough to bring Jesus over? Would he be impressed to come into your home, to, to, to come into your room and just to see how just in order your, your home is? You see, one of the things that I've really learned from Courtney is the importance of making your home a sanctuary. Now, I didn't get this at first. We got married. And when we got married, uh, on our wedding day, we had what was called the money dance. I had never heard of it before, but we literally went out onto the dance floor, and there were several songs playing, and there were lines of women to dance with me, and lines of men to dance with her, 
But in order to dance with us, they had to give us money. By the end of the money dance, we had over $700. Now, we went to Mexico for our honeymoon, and let's just say Mexico isn't very expensive, so we didn't need all that money. So when we got home, I had a lot of cash, and I thought, this is awesome. Now we can save, we can invest, we can maybe pay off a little debt. This is good. And Courtney's like, well, I, I really was hoping, Joel, that, that we could decorate the house. I said, well, why do we need to do that? <laughs> I said, this is a great opportunity to save. And, no, 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 we, we need some pictures. We need some furniture. I'm like, babe, we got a bed, we got a couch, a table, we're good. And she's like, no, we got to decorate. The home needs to be a sanctuary. So I didn't understand this. I fought it for like days, weeks, and eventually I got discipled. Joel, you need to go out and help your wife decorate your home. So I basically said, all right, you can decorate it from the thrift store, from Craigslist. No, I'm serious. But we did decorate it, and my wife has become now very thrifty. And in fact, we had a, 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 a table that was donated to us for our yard, and she sold it on, on, online for $240. Wow. And then she bought another one that was even nicer than that last night from OfferUp for $60. Wow. So we were able to, we went above our missions last week and we were able to give even more today. Wow. Because my wife is incredibly thrifty. The home needs to be a sanctuary. Somewhere that, that you're looking forward to going to. You know, when your home is not a sanctuary for you, it can be a nightmare. Yeah. But when your home is somewhere that you look forward to going so you can spend time with God and spend time in solace and really connect in a faithful way to our Lord and Savior. If you want that, then you need to have a clean home. Right. It's the only way to have a clean, to have a clear head and a clear heart. You know, I, I don't believe that, that this passage was written for them alone but really for us as well. Yeah. After you become a Christian, then seven more demons are now knocking on your door. You thought it was hard to get into the kingdom, and even Paul talks about this. He goes, man, we went, we went through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God in Acts, I believe, chapter 14. He goes, we, we went through many hardships. But yet we don't see too often we have to go through many hardships to stay in the kingdom of God. Yeah. But how often in the scriptures are we commanded to persevere and to keep on fighting? Right. Right. You see, the temptations are there, and the demons are knocking. Yeah. But we've got to have a clean house if we're going to have a clear head and a clear heart. Yeah. Yeah. Number three. The third lesson I've learned from my lovely wife, Courtney. A virtuous morning for a victorious day. In Luke chapter 21... Come on, Joel. In verse 37, the Bible tells us a little bit about Jesus' schedule here. And it says, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple courts. And each evening he went out to spend the night at the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. You know, the Bible says right here that Jesus' mornings, he would go into the temple... And he would preach all day. And then in the evening, at night, he would then go to the Mount of Olives, which was at the foot of, uh, or was, that, was a hill right outside of Jerusalem. 
and he'd go there and he'd spend the night. Now, what was Jesus doing at the hill called the Mount of Olives? Well, look over in Mark chapter 1. Come on, Joe. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he watched YouTube. Oh, no. Where he checked his Facebook. Oh, no. Where he made his coffee and chilled out and no, no, no. He went to go pray. Amen. How did Jesus have the energy to go out and preach all day long? That's exhausting to you. And that's exhausting to me. I got to preach all day. I got to meet people all day. I'm an independent person. I like to keep to myself. Well, if we're going to be like Jesus, we got to learn from Jesus. Yes. Right. He went out, he was giving, he poured himself out all day long. Mm. How did he do it? He spent time in prayer. Yeah. He on, got up early in the morning. How early? Before it was dark. Yeah. Before it was light, while it was still dark. Right. Now that's a very challenging thing to do in Seattle. Yeah. This morning, light was coming through my window at 5.30 a.m. Yeah. I don't know what time Jesus was waking up in the morning. But I guess it's probably somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30 a.m. But he did it to pray, to prepare for his day. You know, if we're going to have a victorious day each and every day, we've got to have virtuous mornings. Mornings that are memorable. Mornings where we can connect with God. We get our needs met. We get filled up so we can go pour ourselves out. If you want to learn how to get up early, just have a couple kids. They will teach you very fast how to get up early. This morning, our son was in our room. I believe it was like 5.06 or something like that. And he's jumping on top of me and he said, let's, let's, you know, like, let's go play. He said, I want cereal. I want to, you know, I'm like, lay down, go back to bed. You know, kids will teach you how to get up early. But when there are needs that need to be met, and you're the one holding the money back, when you're responsible, you meet those needs. Because people were going early to the temple to listen to Jesus preach, he got up early before it was even light so that he could prepare to go preach to them. Mm. You know, I appreciate my wife so much. She's such an incredible example of this. She's so consistent in her times with God. In the mornings, she's up. She gets the kids situated so she can go get some alone time. And she's got her Bible. And she's got her music. And she's got her coffee. Sometimes she's got some candles lit. She's got her journal and she's got her pen. And she spends quality time with the Lord every morning. On, you Lord. women have an incredible women's ministry leader that really cares for all your souls and wants to pour herself out all day long. But she understands it comes only because she connects with God in the morning. You know, David said he would... In the morning and at night, meditate on the Word of God. In Psalm chapter 5, he says, Early in the morning I lay my request before you in wait and expectation. There's just something about the mornings yeah. to prepare for your day. Yeah. I want to encourage you. If you're reading your Bibles at night, continue to do so. But make sure you have a habit every morning of spending it with the Lord. Let's go to our last point. Which is the importance of having a firm foundation of family. You know, yesterday Courtney reminded me that our family is our number one ministry. 
that we are each other's number one disciples and that our kids are number two and number three. Yeah. We've got to remember the family that God's given us. Amen. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it would say, if you don't have an immediate family, maybe you're still single, well, yet that immediate family is replaced by your household. Mm. It says, if you don't take care, especially of your household, you're worse off than an unbeliever. We've got to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness by first taking care of the people that God has given to us in our lives. Turn over with me to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3 verse 31, it says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around them and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother, and my sister, and my mother. Amen. You know, at first glance, this may seem harsh. I mean, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside looking for you. Now notice how it doesn't mention his dad. Many people believe that it was at this point his dad was already dead, Joseph. And so it's just his mother and his brothers. And they're outside and they're looking for him. They were always looking for Jesus. They're looking for him. And they go, hey, Jesus, your mom and your, your, your family's outside. They're, they're looking for you. And he goes, why don't you tell them that these are my mother and my brothers? In fact, everyone who does God's will, these are my brother, my sister, and my brothers. Why don't you go tell my mom that? And you may go, wow, that's harsh. That's mean. When in fact it was the most loving thing he could have said in the moment. Amen. You see, if he prioritized his physical family over his spiritual family, then the spiritual family would no longer take him seriously. He had to prioritize his spiritual family over his physical family. It was the only chance he had at his physical family becoming part of his spiritual family. You know, we've got to make sure that we're building a foundation of family in the church. Yeah. You know, our country used to be built on family. Not so much anymore. Divorce rates are through the roof. And, you know, sadly, so many people are growing up without their, their, their parents, one or two. Or, you know, there's so many uh, children in, in the adoption agencies. And, I mean, it's really, it's really sad kind of the direction that our country is taking. But the foundation of family is long gone. I want to read a, a letter that actually my dad wrote back in November 18, 1974. Wow. Um, this is a letter he wrote to um, the basketball coach, um, to uh, my, sorry, my grandfather wrote this, to the basketball coach of my dad at his school. He goes, Dear Richard, I am writing to explain a hard-nosed position I have taken regarding school activities. I was brought up in a household in which the morning and evening meal hours were invalid, and I am insisting on this same time together for my present family. I am not willing to have my kids take part in any school activity that takes them away from the 5.30 to 7 p.m. dinner hour. And I feel this information should be in your file and should be considered by athletic and band people in the school system. I still feel that the cornerstone of American society is the family unit, and I am not willing to have my kids be absent from home during the evening meal hour. 
please pass this information along to those who might be concerned. I would be glad to discuss this with you or anyone at the school, where there might be conflicts with activities in which my kids are involved. I greatly appreciate all you do for the boys. Sincerely, Robert D. Parlor. Wow, that's sad. You know, we live in a world where these letters don't get written anymore. Right. In fact, family has compromised and sacrificed time and time again to prioritize extracurricular activities. Now, you may go, well, well how, how is your dad going to become better at instruments and athletics if he wasn't going to participate? And ironically enough, my dad did go on to play college basketball. It is possible without sacrificing your family. And I want to convince you today that you do not need to sacrifice your family. In fact, Jesus, prioritizing his spiritual family over his physical family, was not a sacrifice of his physical family. It was, in fact, quite the opposite. It was an example to his physical family. So they, too, could be won over and become his disciples. How do we know this? Because it works. Jesus never gave up his hard-nosed position and eventually, his family was won over. In Acts chapter 1, it says that his mother and his brothers were numbered amongst the disciples. They became disciples. In fact, as, G as uh, David read earlier, Jesus was hanging on the cross. And his mother, not only was his physical mother, but when she became a disciple, she became the spiritual mother to the other apostles. You know, in Christ, we do not have to sacrifice our physical family for our spiritual family. I want to convince you that prioritizing your spiritual family only enhances your chances at helping your physical family follow Jesus. You know, in Christ, we have incredible mothers that can be incredible spiritual mentors in our lives. I do believe that my wife is an incredible example but I look around the church and I see a lot of incredible examples. I, I think that there is a lot we can learn from our dear brother or sister Kaiser. Kaiser came to the church about six months ago and immediately adopted all the younger people as her sons and daughters. I think we can learn a lot from our sister Lori. So many of the young people under her wing to mentor them and train them and look out for them. Yeah. I do think of Aaron Bombach. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, as a younger single mother, has not used it as an excuse, but rather an example yeah. for what it looks like to be a powerful and effective single mother in God's kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. I think of Deanne. that God has put in our lives right now yeah. 
that are incredible examples. And yes, we can study these things out in the Bible. Yes, we can use the scriptures to be inspired by these people of old. But they are looking at you. They longed to be in the kingdom of God. And let us learn lessons from the spiritual mothers that God has put in our lives. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Amen.